kindness, goodness, and gentleness. Uh, kindness and goodness, those little words are almost interchangeable. If you look at the Greek, in English, they're very different words. But in the Greek there, when you look at the definition of kindness, it has the word goodness in it. Uh, and when you, have, when you look at the word goodness, it has the word generosity in it. So all right, let's go through some of these. Kindness, krestotes, which usually renders in English as either kindness or goodness. Krestotes means having a gracious attitude, and it is the opposite of a severe attitude. I think we know what that means, doesn't it? When somebody offends you or does something wrong, you know what it is to treat them too severely or to be treated severely. And you know what it is to be treated with a gracious attitude. Crestotes is, is that which helps people and it's also used to describe people being good people or honest people. So to say this is person is a kind person in, in this Greek word, it's just a, it, that's what I mean when I say these words kind of blend together a little bit. It's a, it's a word, krestotes is, is used to describe basic moral goodness or integrity. All right, now the next word. Uh, it's rendered goodness, but it's agathosune. It means moral uprightness or goodness or a willingness. This is the fascinating part. A willingness to share with others. All right, so the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit, a willingness to share with others. Agathosune implies benevolent activity for others. Someone who is called agathusone is being identified as someone who is characterized by good deeds done for others as a way of life. Isn't that fascinating? Fruit of the Spirit, you'll be the kind of person who, remember this, like this was highlighted in our chapter, uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter's sermon to Cornelius. He says, you know about Jesus who was, whom God anointed with the Spirit and power. And then after that, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So when the Spirit came on Jesus, he incessantly went around doing good. Fascinating, right? That's one of the marks of the Spirit of God, is going around incessantly doing good. So in the book, The Fruitful Life, Jerry Bridges drilled down into the idea of doing good for others as the focus of his chapter where he took both of these words together. And he's right to do so because like I just said, in those definitions, they really blend together. So what, you hear my asthma squealing? <coughs> Clear that out a little. Uh, so if I could put them both together, you could say that kindness and goodness, just to, you like how I put that on the laptop? <laughs> if I would have done it in PowerPoint or, or not PowerPoint, if I would have done it in my better software, I would have, yeah, tilted it to me to, and like, I spent some time on it. But okay, having a gracious attitude, that's the kindness part, that leads to a lifestyle of meeting the needs of others in order to promote their well-being. So can you see the connection? The, the kindness has to do with the gracious attitude toward others. 
and the goodness is the incessant good deeds. So I pulled like five highlights out of Jerry Bridges' chapter, and so here they are. Do good to everybody, even if they're mean. Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind, this is interesting, he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So do good to everybody was one of the first themes that, I, that stuck out to me. That's Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them, lend to your enemies, without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So we're supposed to do good to everybody and, and then our hearts naturally go, except for those people because those people are mean. <laughs> and God's like, uh, no, Mm-mm. nope, everybody. And then the second thing I pulled out of that chapter is that there is an order of priority in our incessant doing good, our good deeds. There's an order of priority. First, our family, then the household of faith, and then the world. First, the family, then the church, then the world. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. That's interesting. People do that very backwards, especially in a, yeah, people do it very backwards. World, church, family. I think people are going to do it more and more backwards as people throw the church out of the equation. My cousin Jeremy and I, we have this ongoing dialogue. I called him the other day and we had like an hour and a half talk about all sorts of stuff. And he is, he is the church, Tim, the church is God's only agent of the kingdom in the world. We cannot neglect the church. We cannot walk away from the church. We cannot let people lose their vision for the church. And I'm like, I hear you. <laughs> you know, He's just so passionate about it because he feels it's really under threat. It's really under threat. People feel like they can do this thing without the church. But anyway, yeah, you're right. And then, like, uh, then, uh, on the list of uh, widows, uh, remember the um, widows who are really widows can be put on the list, but until then, their family should care for them. Like, that, that's a fast, because they're, practically, there's, only a, there's a fixed amount of available resources, and we don't want to just, I mean, it sounds really dark, just because your husband died. No, we're, <laughs> yes, your husband died, but do you have family? Are you young enough you can remarry? Those were like super practical concerns, you know, but the family, caring for your family, uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> I remember Gerald Yoder talking about that verse when we were at a church council meeting. It feels like something's touching me. We were at a church council meeting and he said, well, hold on here. Instead of us just giving alms funds into the situation, shouldn't we first talk to the family? And he quoted this verse, and we all were like, that's correct. There's a right way to handle this. So we did, and the church ended up not needing to, because once the family was alerted, 
Sometimes family doesn't know stuff. You know? Okay. But there's an order of priority in our doing good. We're supposed to do good to everybody, point one, even mean people. Point two, Jerry Bridges looks at these verses and says, uh, first responsibility is family. Second responsibility is fellow believers. Third responsibility is the world. And part of, the, in part of that, you can say, oh, are you trying to say that God doesn't love the world as much as the church? No, I, I think part of the reality is it's going to be a terrible witness if we can't even care for each other. <laughs> right? It's, it's not that they don't matter as much. It's that we've got... This, this has to mean something for them to want to join it you know, and have a clear vision of God. Third part, uh, third point that I drew out of Jerry Bridges' chapter was that our daily jobs, our workaday world jobs, whether they're paid jobs away from home or whether we're stay-at-home dad, mom or dad, I have a... a my, my sister works and my brother was the stay-at-home dad. That t- turned our gender <laughs> expectations on their head. And says, shh, shouldn't put this online. That was hard for some of us in the family. <laughs> but he's a fantastic dad. He's been a fantastic stay-at-home dad, you know? But our daily jobs are a context, a primary context for doing good. Um, our daily job that pays the bills should not be something separate from how we work out, walk out our calling, but rather the haircutting, the mowing the lawns, the selling the refrigerators, or whatever it is we do. Hopefully we're providing meaningful services. I remember hearing Tony Campolo talk to a group of insurance salesmen, and they thought they were in business to make money. That they just, no one ever told them that's not what you're doing. So they just thought, I'm here to make money. And in their mind, they didn't even think through, no, I'm here to provide an incredibly valuable service that will help people when their lives go wrong. Like, he just painted the vision. And can you imagine thinking that your only job is to just take advantage of the people in front of you to get their money? And like not connecting the dots that you are providing a valuable service? So suddenly they went from feeling like, oh, I'm here to make money, to... I'm helping people. And you know what that did to them? Yeah. They started to feel good about their life because they got up in the morning, they were doing something for people that, was, that mattered. Yeah. I, I, I think this is huge. I think this is why a lot of guys uh, look at porn, are addicted to drugs, hate themselves, overeat, because they feel worthless, because they don't have a job that's meaningful. And I'm not saying that women don't relate to this too, but I know for men, it's extremely important that we have a meaningful job that we feel good about that matters in the world. It's connected to purpose. So Ephesians 2.10 was the verse that he quoted, which says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And, And essentially he was saying, you spend this much time at your job or at home with your kids, if that's your job, can you imagine never seeing that as ministry? He's, it was just kind of like, I thought that was a beautiful vision. He said it really well. Yeah, he probably said it really better than I'm saying it. No, but I, I, I actually folded the page down so I could find my way back to it, and I read it to Garrett today. Just that section. Can I read it so the recording has it? Sure. This is it the highlighted part? 
that's the part that I found most meaningful. But. Most honorable vocations exist to meet the needs of people. God has ordained his world so that people with various abilities meet various needs. We should think of our vocation, therefore, not as a necessary evil to pay the bills, nor even as an opportunity to become rich, but as the primary path of our Christian walk wherein God has planned good deeds for us to do. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's the part. So that was the third thing, that our daily jobs are a primary place where, where we do ministry. I remember um, moving here and having a conversation with somebody, and they fully believed that missions was elsewhere and ministry was like pastoring. And I'm like, wait, no, what? You're the missionaries here. And you're the ministers here. Like, what? You see what I'm saying? Like, that's just, I don't, I can't even think that way. So, all right. Uh, fourth one. I thought this was so helpful. He said, sometimes we don't know what we can do to help people. We don't know what, how to help. We think we don't have gifts or whatever. And he's like, I just thought of my buddy and I wanted to help him. So I called him up. He was going through a hard time, and then we met together. He, and when he showed up, he said something like, when you call, as soon as you called, I just felt so loved and supported. And he's like, I hadn't even done anything, but just the fact that I was willing to meet with him. And so listening, we don't have to know what to say. I think we feel obligated to have some helpful, like, wisdom and answer. And, you know, I was reading this chapter and uh, put it down and... Was I reading or was I making these notes? I think I was making these notes and I, yesterday and I put the book down and I contacted some people who, who are going through some grief just to reach out to say, I'm here for you if you ever... I know, <laughs> with one of them I said, hey, I know I'm popular as a person who doesn't know how to shut up, but <laughs> I promise you I can listen if you need me to. And they laughed and they're like, uh, I'm, I have no doubt that you would listen. Often the most helpful thing that we can give someone is our time and attention. Some people just need us to communicate that they matter and that they're worth our time. I have a friend, and he only gives me five minutes here, five minutes there. And as much as I like him, it annoys me. Whatever he's doing next is more important than me, and I can feel that. <laughs> I hate that. It's like, dude... You're so busy, you're trying to squeeze in a little, oh, pollinate Tim's heart, too, while we're at it. And I'm like, just quit giving me the scraps, bro. You know? And I love how Brian Connolly joked when he was here that he carves out time for me because he knows he's going to... What he's really saying, other people were like, yeah, Tim's a talker, but here's what I heard him saying. I love Tim so much that I want to give him quality time. And he does. It's surprising. And then once I heard that, I was like, wow, it's really surprising how much he actually answers the phone. You know? Or I can't talk now. Can I call you this afternoon? And then he will. Listening. Uh, and if you don't think you have the best advice or don't know what to say, it's okay. Advice is fine, but advice is usually not the thing that people remember. What they remember is how they felt while you were together. That's what they remember. 
And then the other thing that I, that I took from Jerry Bridges was just how impacted he was by the sheep and the goats story of Jesus, where this property of goodness being incessantly doing good things for others is like the one thing that comes up on the final exam, <laughs> if you could call that. Uh, the sheep and the goats are the people all gathered to Jesus at the end of history, and he says, inasmuch as you did it unto me, and as much as you did it unto the least of these brethren of mine, you did it unto me. Or, in as much as you did not do it unto the least of these brethren of mine. Which, that's fascinating. Look at that. Uh, we're, to, we're called to do good, especially the household of faith, faith. And look what he says. To the least of these brethren of mine. Jesus seems very concerned with how we treat his people. When they show up sick, alone, in prison, in need, food, clothing, water, thirsty. I was naked, you clothed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison and sick and you came, visited, care for me, all that stuff. The practical stuff. None of that is stuff you learned how to do in ministry school. Isn't that interesting? None of the stuff on the final exam <laughs> is stuff that we learn how to do in ministry school. Uh, maybe we need to change that. And you definitely don't need to go to school to learn how to do that. You just get doing it, you know? Um, I felt like this just sort of flowed out of me at the end because part of the reason it's so critical that that this goodness, this, this kindness and goodness be a fruit of the Spirit and not just a list of rules, is that anyone who sets themselves to do good things in the world, any public servant, any, any soup kitchen operator or clothing, closet, clothing ministry operator or pastor or Sunday school teacher or whoever you are, anytime you set yourself to do good in the world, you bump into the world. You bump into the ungrateful and the wicked. You bump into relationship breakdowns and stuff. And um, it, takes an, it makes an impact. So and if we don't keep an eternal perspective, um, if, you don't, if we don't keep an eternal perspective, we'll quit. There, I said it. If we, <laughs> we'll quit. We won't make it. We won't, it won't be sustainable. We'll end up measuring the work by whether we think it was worth it and, or whether it's working. And if we don't think it's working, then it isn't worth it. Or whether it's appreciated or whether the people, you know, if your goal is to get them to find Jesus and they don't seem to find Jesus, or at least you can't see any change. It's like, I'm wasting my life here, right? I'm, I'm not crazy to say this, right? So it's like, can, can, we, can we sustain good works in the world if our perspective is... Um, this reminds me of like Dorothy, Dorothy Day. When Thomas Merton, the... Catholic monk, when he was just sort of trying to find what, how do you live? 
he bumped into this lady and she, he kind of toyed with communism and some other things like to try to make the world better. Young people have strong ideals. Everything's black and white, right and wrong, true and false. And they're, they're, gonna, make, they're gonna make the world better. You know, they're gonna fix this thing. And they're usually pretty angry and, and motivated about getting it fixed. And then after a while they try and it doesn't work. The world's still broken. And then they figure out that they've actually broken the world a little worse by their efforts to fix it. And then they figure out that they're actually really broken themselves. And the whole thing is just like, then, I, then, they, then it's the, the dark cynicism. And he's watching this lady and she's doing good in the world and she's like unmoved. And her secret was Jesus. That her worldview was Christ-centered and eternal. She was a Catholic. Dorothy Day. And she, she really had a positive impact on him realizing, oh, human efforts to fix the world through human energy. My cousin and I were talking about this, and I said one of the most encouraging things that I've heard this year was an Orthodox monk who said, you will not make the world a better place. You will not save the world. You will not heal the world. You will not change the world eternally because the next generation will be born just as sinful and they'll sin too. What you can do is do your part to participate in Christ and be an expression of him in the midst of the world and when he returns and eradicates sin and death, that and that alone will fix the world. So in the meantime, don't be trying to be the Messiah by carrying the world on your shoulders to fix it. He said, but our problem is we don't want to help poverty. We want to end it. We can help, but we won't end it. We, wanna, we don't want to just help uh, have less violence. We want to end it. And he's like, look, look, at, look, people are wearing the bracelets. End, end it. Whatever the issue is, we're going to end it. We're going to end it. We're going to be the generation that ends it. And he's like, you're not going to end it. You're not going to end violence. You're not going to end gun violence, knife violence, stick violence, fist violence, heart violence, because it comes from sin. You're not going to end it. Uh, that sounds so hopeless, right? But like, oh, it was water for my soul. He was like saying, calm down, sit down, take your rightful place, be an expression of love in the world, recognizing that when you're gone, if Christ doesn't come, there will be just as much sin as, as when you found it, probably. The whole, new, the whole next generation, the Holy Spirit's going to have to do this all over again, and he will. But he's the Savior. He's the, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much on that point, but that was so helpful to me to have a different view than we are responsible, like Lonnie Frisbee used to say. We're responsible. This generation of, of Christians needs to take the Great Commission seriously. And that's true, we do. That's true, we do. But not in such a way. Because <laughs> that's this, this Orthodox priest, he didn't grow up Orthodox, he grew up Pentecostal. So he wore the weight of that on his shoulders. <laughs> and, then, and then he got a bigger vision of Christ. And he said, I can just be little old me and I can be a witness and I can invite people to take communion and I can show them love and I can show them light. And they have choices to make. 
and I have choices to make, but I don't have to be their answer. Okay, so Galatians 6 says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good at just the right time. We will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Galatians 6, 9, it's Bobby Acoff's favorite verse of all time. Let us not be weary in well-doing. That's how he always quoted the King James. This is the new living. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So I'm saying contradictory things slightly, right? I'm saying we won't save the world, we won't end it, and yet we have an obligation to do incessant good deeds in the world. It's kind of like Jesus saying, you will always have the poor with you. (laughs) You will always have the poor with you. Make sure you sell your possessions and give alms to the poor, so then you'll have treasure in heaven. (laughs) It should. (laughs) It can. And and, and see, if your goal is to end it, Will you be able to sustain your good work in the world? No. <laughs> it's like, ah. So those are the first two words. Gentleness. True strength. Okay. I know this is further down the list, and we're doing these a little out of order. Um, but that's okay. Gentleness. This one I need a lot of in my life. Gentleness feels like weakness, uh, especially in our culture. We are in a culture that tells you nice guys finish last. We are in a culture that tells you hustle, hurry, um, be be there first. Uh, the, The squeakiest wheel gets greased. Um, If you want to get something done, complain, talk to the manager. March, do your thing. Make your voice known. Be bold. Uh, Be irreverent. We, we, We actually think someone who is brash and irreverent uh, is being brave and strong. So gentleness to our culture feels like weakness. But the craziest thing is, in the Greek definition, it actually calls it a form of strength. But we'll get there. That's actually halfway down the notes. Gentleness is often not associated with masculinity either. Masculinity tends to be associated, like, like, like this guy right here. He's looking pretty manly. Um, gentleness tends to be associated more with femininity. <clears throat> That's a baby. Uh, temper. Yep. That's ex- you already knew where I was headed. It's a baby emperor penguin, and mom lays an egg and then leaves to go get fat with food. And the dads stay put on the ice in the craziest, like what, 40 degrees below, in the craziest storms that would just, I mean, we would die. You and I would just be dead. 
and they huddle up and they, and they sit on those eggs and those eggs hatch. And then finally, mom comes back and, and feeds the baby and then dad can finally take his turn and go and regain. He's just sacrificed. It's a crazy thing. It's a cra- so in nature, you find that gentleness, or I should say, uh, the kind of nurture, maybe, is a word that we associate with gentleness because the young are what? They're fragile, they're vulnerable, they're dependent. Notice how people talk when they talk to a newborn. They talk gentle. You notice how they move when they move around a newborn. They move gentle, right? And so I, I, I find with my wife, she is naturally gentle with the children, and I'm naturally more rough, and she is consistently calling me on it. The other night, Zion was directly disobeying me, and I yelled at him. And Carrie rushed into the room and saw that he was crying and didn't understand that he wasn't crying because he got yelled at. He was crying because I was, <laughs> I was making him not do the thing. But I still checked on him. I even got out of bed later and checked on him again and apologized and everything. And Okay. But my point is, Carrie is naturally just tender-hearted with the kids. And I am naturally firm. And, and <laughs> to a fault. I'm too firm. I need to be more gentle. And I, and I want to grow more gentle. Okay. But oftentimes we associate gentleness with people who would, like, uh, would nurse or comfort, uh, like nurses who care for the elderly or the sick or the wounded. Um, feminine, in other words. We can, I think... Am I wrong that we tend to think of gentleness as a feminine trait? And would you say that, oh boy, now we're getting into to really difficult territory. A man who is not gentle would be less judged than a woman who is not gentle? <laughs> it, seems, it seems like we'll give a little more grace to a dude who needs to grow in gentleness than a woman who should. I'm just saying that, that, okay. And a meek man is often considered not a real man. I'm not saying that should be that way. Just saying it often is that way. Gentleness and meekness go together. In fact, this word is the same word that's often rendered in English, meekness. Gentleness, meekness, interchangeable English words for the same Greek word. And in our mind, if you're gentle or if you're meek, you're going to get pushed around. You're going to get walked all over. And, you know, the world was going to eat, is going to eat your lunch. And so in that mindset comes Jesus saying this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I go, okay, um, you're going to need to help me here, Jesus, because it looks like the opposite is going on now. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think he would say, you are correct, but there will be a great reversal. There will be a great reversal. Right? When he says, blessed are those who weep now, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor. They won't be then. 
It's, it, it, yeah, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. There's this, there's this reversal. The way things are now, when I come in my kingdom, it will all be set right. And those who are on the top right now are probably on the bottom later. And vice versa. Interesting. I think many of us believe a very, at least I do, and I don't mean believe like we would preach this. I don't mean believe like we would put a bumper sticker on that says this. But I mean that our behavior reveals what we believe. I think many of us believe a very persuasive lie that we are powerless. And when we feel powerless, we use anger to gain power. We use meanness to gain power. We use pushiness and rudeness and aggression to gain power because we don't believe we are powerful. Here's the lie. Anger makes me powerful. And if we believe anger makes us powerful, then we also must believe gentleness makes us weak when, in fact, the opposite is the truth. I remember the Holy Spirit dealing with me pretty severely because I resorted to anger when I felt powerless in relationship to a conflict I was having with my wife. And he said, I really wish you wouldn't do that because the more you do that, the more I can't, I can't reach her. <laughs> so I thought... I was saving, you know, I'm, I'm taking, I'm, my anger, my, my, that's, I'm going to get something done here with that. At the very least, she won't cross me again. And God says, you've just caused her to have, like, I cannot even convict her of her part of this equation anymore. Because what you did was so wrong, now she feels 100% justified and how she's behaving. If, you, if you'll stay gentle, it creates a landing pad for my conviction, you know? Which is a fascinating idea. Like, and same for her toward me. If, if, she, if she responds in kind when I mistreat her, it just causes me to feel even more justified in my sin. And if she doesn't, oh my word, the conviction can get so heavy that I don't even know how to live, it, live with it. Right? But here's the lie. Anger makes me powerful. And, you know, the scripture has a lot of interesting things to say about this. Here's just one small example. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Somebody explain what, what, this, what this proverb means. You think if you come on strong and win the argument, the king will rule in your favor. And you're wrong. Yeah, a proverb is not a promise, right? It's a generalized observation. It's not an airtight fact that will always be true in all circumstances. It's a proverb, not a promise. But in general, the idea is we think people don't hear us. Again, we, going back to the thing of power. We think we're powerless. 
We think we're not persuaded. I've heard my wife say this in the past. She doesn't say it as much anymore, but years ago she would have used to say this. Nobody listens to me. My words are powerless. And I, and I was like, that's a lie. Why are you giving that any space? I haven't heard her say that in years. Because now she knows it's a lie. Now when she thinks it and she goes to say it, she goes, there's no point in saying that. I'll, it's not true. But if you believe that your words are powerless, you're going to amp up. When the reality is, if you know your words are powerful, rather than coming on too strong, you're going to be very gracious and very gentle. And then you're going to back right off. Because you can turn the king and therefore the whole nation with a well-placed whisper and then back off and let that person consider. It's, it's kind of amazing to me. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't ever yell at me. People do, but he doesn't. <laughs> he has a lot more favor in my ears, though, than some people because of it. Now we're getting right down to the meat of the issue. If you weren't powerful... You couldn't hurt me. Do you agree with that? The fact that God calls you to gentleness proves you are powerful. He asks you to be gentle because gentleness is only required when you have the power to harm me. So let's actually look at the definition and then we'll be almost, that will basically be done. The Greek word is prautes, and this is literally in the definition, strength that meekly accommodates to another person's weakness. Yeah. That's the actual, like in the Greek lexicon, that's what it says. This Greek word prautes is strength meekly accommodating another's weakness. And obviously it has the word gentle uh, in the definition as well as an as a accurate rendering. It's a quality of gentle... Here, here's the full definition. Prautes is a quality of gentle friendliness and meekness. It is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. And then it also has this word in it, showing consideration. So three things, if you're called to be gentle, then that means three things are true. Number one, you must be very powerful, right? If you don't have to tell a little kid, right? Okay, let's say you, let's, okay, right before I came over here, I go into my bedroom and I think I was getting mouthwash or something. And Zion is under the blanket at the foot of the bed and Annie is jumping all over him. And I said, hey, Zion, that doesn't look safe to me. What if she kicks you in the head? He said, she already did. She's too little to hurt me. And they are having a blast. He's under a blanket, orange blanket, and she is just stomping and jumping. And I'm genuinely concerned because she's, I mean, come on. She could still hurt him. But... He's like, she doesn't need to be gentle with me. She doesn't have the power. She doesn't weigh enough to hurt me. Fascinating, right? Right before I come over here? So three things that I draw from this thing of gentleness. First off, if you're called to be gentle, it must be that you are very powerful. Second, 
what you're handling must be very fragile. And finally, what you're handling must also be very precious. You know, people say things like, I yell at God and he can handle it. That's true. He can handle it. But don't, don't yell at me. He is not intimidated by you. He's not hurt by you because of his greatness, his, like his power, his, his magnitude. If we could possibly comprehend who he is, it's all, it's, then we would get a vision, oh my word, how gentle he is. That he's able to like interact with these, in, you know, oops, now you're all dead, you know. <laughs> he's, he shows incredible and not just physical power restraint. He shows incredible moral restraint. He shows incredible in how he relates, right? Isn't it his kindness that leads to repentance? Not his wrath. So his way of bending our will is not... He doesn't believe anger makes him more powerful. In the sense of, what's he after? Is he after controlling our behavior? Or is he after love? And if he's after love, the way to get at it is not violence and punishment and threats, but rather it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Or think about this one. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, weighed down with heavy burdens. Come to me. Why? Why does Jesus say that we who are weary should come to him? He'll give us rest, for he is gentle, meek, and humble in heart. What is going on that experiencing his gentleness gives us rest? That's fascinating. Gerald Yoderoyz did that for me. He didn't give me advice. He was just kind. And it, and it did something. Something transferred. The burden lifted. I'm still mystified by it, you know, all these years later. Yeah, so those are the three. If you're called to be gentle, it must be that you're very powerful, what you're handling is fragile, and what you're handling is very precious. Now, <laughs> you are very fragile. And you are very precious. So God is very gentle with you. Right? Pete is very valuable and very fragile. So you're called to be very gentle with him. And vice versa. And my wife, that's why my wife gets in my business when she's like, you need to go care for that kid's heart. You were too harsh with them. I'm like, I was not too harsh with them. The other <laughs> sometimes I was even when I think I wasn't. But the other day, what was it? So I disciplined Zion for tell, telling the sisters to shut up. And it was fascinating. Like, the, what was my reasoning? 
They don't care. They don't, they're not hurt by it. You don't know what they're feeling. You don't know how, like, just because someone's hurt doesn't mean they're going to let you see that. People hide all sorts of things. And when you check on them, you find out. Um, I was asking Caroline the other day. I can't even remember what happened. I just remembered saying, hey, Caroline, I'm really sorry. Because, I, oh, I falsely accused her of something. I thought she had done something, and, and, I, and, and she hadn't. And, yeah, she hadn't done it. But it was reasonable, but, uh, but she hadn't done it. It was somebody else. And I said, did you such and such? Did you do this and this and this? And she says, and she's not answering, but she's shaking her head. Then when I realized that I had falsely accused her, I came back and I apologized to her. And I was like, hey, I'm real sorry. I'm real sorry. I snapped at you like that. I'm sorry that I accused you of, of doing that. Did I hurt your feelings? And she doesn't, she doesn't show me a thing. I said, I just went like, I'm really sorry. Daddy's very sorry. And I just kept repeating it over and over. And by about the fourth time, she started crying. But it took about four times. She still never talked about it. But she tucked something away so tight. Does that make sense? Like, she's much more fragile than I think she is. And I'm supposed to be a lot more gentle than I think I need to be with her because of that. Yeah, okay, I'm talking too long now at this point. Plus, you guys are, all three of you are way more gentle as people than I am. So I need, <laughs> need this way more than you two. <laughs> That's it. Shall we pray?